This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles as we continue our series in Matthew to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21, we are looking this morning at verses 12 through 22. 12 through 22. Hear the word of God. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive If you have faith, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, the word of truth, word that gives life. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would accompany your word with power and use it in our lives. Teach us those things, Lord, that you would have us to know. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. When Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem, as he drew near the cities we saw last week, he received a royal welcome. But once he got into the city, and especially to the temple, what Jesus discovered was a royal mess. Jerusalem, of course, was the heart of Judaism, and the temple was the heart of Jerusalem. It was the center. It was the focal point of Jewish religion. It was a grand building, to be sure, magnificent, lavish, impressive. But if you got beyond the physical building to the reality of the condition of the temple, it was not nearly so magnificent. In fact, it was sick. And it typified sick religion, far from what the Lord had given to his people. And all the activity, and all the preparation, and all the 
uh, bustle of Passover could not hide the fact that Judaism was sick. It was very sick. And of course, uh, Jerusalem, or neither Jerusalem or first century religion, had any corner on uh, spiritual sickness. Uh, we've seen that through the centuries and certainly up to the present day, and in fact, similar ailments in the church today. But what did Jesus find? What was it that he saw in and around Jerusalem? Well, this passage has a lot to teach us from what Jesus saw there, so that as followers of Christ, as Christians, we can do our best to make sure that we're not suffering from these same ailments. Now, when you're sick, there are kinds of symptoms that uh, make that sickness known. There's coughing and sniffles and maybe fever and aches uh, or pain. These various symptoms that show that, that not all is well on the inside. Well, that's exactly what it was here. As Jesus encounters Jerusalem, encounters the temple, we see these various symptoms of sickness. And that's what we want to look at today. What were these symptoms? What were they then so that we can do our best uh, by God's grace to be sure that we don't suffer from the same sickness and display the same symptoms today? Well, let's look at a few. In the first place, one symptom that Jesus discovers as he enters the temple precincts was that of worldliness. Now, worldliness, or to be worldly, is, is, is one of those phrases or words that almost has a quaint sound to it. Even in the church, there's not a great deal of talk about what it means to be worldly, or even what that means, uh, what's caught up in that expression. But that's exactly what Jesus encounters when he comes into the temple. Now, you need to understand, as we read Matthew's account, that it's quite compressed, Mark indicates that these things took place over two or three days. For example, the cleaning of the temple came the day after the triumphal entry. Jesus had gone back out to Bethany, came back in the next day, uh, and the, the episode with the fig tree took place over a couple of days. Well, Matthew is not so concerned with the time frame as the teaching, and he compresses this, condenses it, for us, so it's all here together. Well, Jesus enters the temple. It was the day after the triumphal entry. And we read there, Matthew just states the bare minimum. He drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned tables of the money changers, the seats of those who sold pigeons. Well, what's the situation here? Well, Jesus comes in, and there in the temple, uh, it's actually in the court of the Gentiles, he encounters what effectively was a street bazaar with the sound of animals, the, 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 the clinking of money, the crowds bustling about. Now, that was a necessary function as people came in from all over to Jerusalem for the Passover. They needed to purchase the animals to offer the required sacrifices. They also had to exchange their Greek or their Roman money into the proper uh, coin for the temple tax. And so it was necessary, it was a vital service, in fact, for people to be there to sell the animals, for the people to offer, to exchange the money so that they'd have the proper money to offer the temple tax. But there were a couple of problems with what was going on. One was, while they were doing something necessary, they were doing it in the wrong place. They were in the temple, they were in the court of the Gentiles, and Jesus was highly offended by that, and we see that in his expression that we'll look at in just a minute. 
There was another problem with all of this that was taking place, and it had to do with the fact that um, some of, the, at least some of the sellers of animals and the exchangers of money uh, saw the Passover time, saw the uh, the necessity of these purchases as an opportunity to in, in, indulge themselves in a little price gouging, make a little extra money in the busy season. And in fact, sometimes charged uh, hideous rates uh, and and gouged people badly because they knew they had them. They had a captive audience, and uh, they made the most of it. So you could say uh, that there was some corruption as well. Although it is worth noting that that doesn't seem to be the primary concern here. Obviously, Jesus would not have appreciated that. Others didn't either. Uh, but that doesn't seem to be the prime concern. The primary concern was where they were. And that's where we see Jesus' reaction to this. After he drives them out, after he cleans house, he said, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you made it a den of robbers. The house of prayer reference we saw uh, from our Isaiah reading just a little while ago. That's a quotation from that passage. Uh, that indicates how God's kingdom was to, to embrace people of all nations. They were all to have access. They were all to come. In fact, you go back to God's promises to Abraham. He says, I'll make you a blessing to the nations. Even from the beginning, God's grace had the world in view, not just Jerusalem, not just Israel, not just Judah, but the world. And in fact, the temple had its restrictions where people could go, and the Gentiles, all non-Jews, were restricted only to the court of the Gentiles. That was the place they had access to God. And yet it had become a street circus, basically. And Jesus was highly offended that the very place in the temple that represented God's grace to the nations had been so defiled, had been rendered unusable, had gone from being a place for seeking God to seeking a fast buck, in other words, it had become quite worldly, pretty much indistinguishable from the outside street vendors all over the streets of the city. Well, the quotation, you've made a den of robbers, is from Jeremiah 7. Some of you who've been here on Sunday nights uh, may recognize that, where, where uh, the people's confidence was in the temple. You know, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. How could God do anything other than bless us since his temple is here. And Jeremiah rightly points out that their whole view is that of superstition. You know, as long as they have the temple, as long as they go through this perfunctory routine, God must be pleased with them, even though they're worshiping all kinds of false gods. And Jeremiah says, no, remember Shiloh. Remember Shiloh with Eli and Samuel, an early worship place for Israel that uh, had been destroyed. And was nothing but rubble in Jeremiah's day. And said, you, you look at the temple, well, remember Shiloh. That was where God was worshipped. That was where God was served. It's nothing but rubble today. Don't put this misguided faith in the temple, even as you offend God, by your false religion. You take the house of God and make it a den of robbers. It's possible, too, there's a little bit of a nationalistic pride here. You remember Barabbas? People called out for Barabbas to be released instead of Jesus. And the, 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 the Gospels tell us Barabbas was, some translations say, a robber. Other translations will say a revolutionary or an insurrectionist. 
The word robber could also mean that, uh, an insurrectionist, a Jewish nationalist. And it could also be here a hint of what Jesus is saying when he says the robber is not so much referring to the corruption, to the extortion, but saying you're you're investing the temple with this, this flaming Jewish nationalism where you see yourselves as the people and look out on all these Gentiles as dogs. Whereas, in fact, God intended for his temple to be a house for all nations. And your Jewish pride is getting in the way of that. All of that's worldly. The money, the selling, the pride that excludes others, that's the world creeping into the people of God. The people of God acting like the world around them acts. That's worldliness. When the church, when the people of God begin to act in the same way as the world around them. Now, as we look at that, we say, well, how does that apply to us? Well, certainly we can have worldliness on a personal level. Francis Schaeffer warned uh, Christians of the danger of living to pursue our own personal peace and affluence. You know, as long as I'm comfortable, as long as I have plenty, as long as I have ease and my life is good and undisturbed, the rest of the world can just go to hell, literally. That's a danger. That's a worldly mentality. Instead of As the promise to Abraham indicates, having a vision for the world, wanting the good news that I enjoy, the gospel that I enjoy, the grace of God that I enjoy, to be shared by the world, to be known in the world, and to be willing to give of of my treasure, to be willing to give of my time, to be willing to give of my life in order that others might enjoy what, what I enjoy, rather than the pursuit of personal peace and affluence and excluding the needs of the world. Will it, will it cost? Yes. Will it be inconvenient? Yes. Will it mean sacrifice on my part? Yes. Did saving your soul mean cost for Jesus? Yes. Did it mean inconvenience for Jesus? Yes. Did it mean sacrifice for Jesus? Literally, yes. Are you above your master? Which concerns you more? the diminishing balance of your IRA or the lost state of your neighbor next door? Which is driving you more to pray, the bad economy or that pagan co-worker you work next to? Which concerns you more? You see, worldliness can creep in on an individual level. It can also creep into the church corporately, the church as a group. And we see this in different ways. One of the more disturbing trends in the church over the last several decades has been this whole concept of marketing the church. To basically take ideas of business that are good and legitimate and necessary in business and transferring them over to the church. So that we try to run the church like a business. Well, we've got to market. We've got to find out what the potential consumers out there, what we used to call unsaved people or non-Christians, what, what they want in a church, what would make them comfortable, what would be the kinds of things that would make unbelievers want to come to our church, and then be that, rather than say, what do the scriptures call us to be as a church? What is God's pattern for what we are to be and what we are to do and what we are to teach and to preach? You see, the danger is if you're so concerned about getting non-Christians inside the church, you begin to tone down the message. You begin to soft-pedal the hard things in Scripture for fear that you might offend people. 
You see, our, our primary concern should not be how to get people in the doors of this building. It should be how to get people into the kingdom of God. You know, and the motive is good. We get them in the church, they'll hear the gospel. But the problem is what you win them with is what you win them to. You don't do bait and switch on non-Christians. They're too smart for that. You can't say, well, we'll win them in with this, but then we'll turn around and hit them with the gospel. Because when you do that, they'll leave. Just like when you go to something that's advertised in the paper, and you go to the store and they say, oh, we're fresh out, but we have this. You say, oh, no, thanks. That's not what I came in for. Well, that's what non-Christians can do as well. Or they don't get offended because they find nothing to be offended about. And before long, you have a church that is more and more made up of unbelievers, unconverted people. So the whole idea of marketing the church and this pursuit of a, of a false sort of relevance. You know, if we just teach people how to have good families, if we just teach people how to succeed at work, if we just teach people how to deal with their inner fears. Title of a popular book, Your Best Life Now. That's never been the concern of the church. The concern of the church is your best life then. Not now, but heaven. This life is full of pain, it's full of suffering, it's full of difficulties and hardships at one time or another for all of us. But our eyes are fixed on Jesus. Our focus is on heaven. Our aim is toward glory. You know, too often, to, to quote the words of another, the concern of the church is not to preach Christ and him crucified. It's to preach human nature and it improved. That's worldliness in the church. We lose sight of who we are to be, what we are to do, and the message we are to proclaim for fear of offending, because we want to draw a crowd, because we want to be liked. Going to use of other means than the means God has given us in Scripture, the preaching of the Word, and baptism, and the Lord's Supper, and prayer. You look at the book of Acts. Look at the amazing way the church grew. How did it happen? It happened through the preaching of the Word, and prayer. And that's how we want to build the church, not by pursuing wrong ideas of relevance, uh, not by our own human efforts and ingenuity in marketing the church, not by might nor by power, but by God's spirit. So the first symptom Jesus found was that of worldliness in the church. The second was blindness, blindness, even among the leaders who should have known better. Look at verse 14. Ironically, it was the blind and the lame who came to Jesus in the temple and he healed them there. What better place? Uh, then, then they're in the temple uh, to be healed. But, verse 15, when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and more than that, heard the children saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Now, it's kind of funny if you think about that, because the children, many of whom were there, participated in the triumphal entry or heard the crowd shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. And, you know, children pick up what they hear and, They say it too. And so these children see Jesus there in the temple, and they're still echoing what they heard yesterday. They're still fired up about it. Hosanna to the Son of David. You know, just repeating what they'd heard. And the chief priests and scribes are offended. They said they were indignant. They said, do you hear what these are saying? As as if there's something wrong with it. And Jesus said, yes. Have you never read, which is a favorite expression of his, when he counters the ignorance of, and blindness of the leaders. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. That quotation from Psalm 8. Don't, don't you read your Bibles? Don't you know what it says? Don't you see that this is being fulfilled right here before your eyes and you don't see it? 
That's the tragedy. Yes, the people were blind, but it was in large part because their leaders were blind. And you know, Jesus constantly tangled with the religious leaders of the people who opposed him, who were blind to who he was and blind to what he came to do. As we'll see in the not too distant future, Matthew 23, those woes that Jesus pronounces on the scribes and Pharisees. But there's this, there's this blindness this failure to recognize that, that the scriptures are being fulfilled right in front of them, and they miss it. Blindness uh, certainly was not uh, spiritual blindness, not limited just to the first century. That's a danger for all of us uh, at one time or another to see what God is doing in our, in our own hearts, to see what God is doing in the lives of others around us. Again, too often uh, pursuing our own peace uh, and not wanting God to work in us. Because sometimes when God works in us, it's difficult, or it's painful, or it's scary. And yet God is at work. But we don't want to be like these leaders who missed it, who missed what God is doing. That's the third symptom of sickness here, and it has to do with this fig tree. And it is the sickness uh, exemplified by hypocrisy. Uh, this fig tree is in large measure about hypocrisy. Let's see what happened. Well, Jesus leaves in verse 17, goes back out to Bethany, where he apparently was staying with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And in the morning, he was returning to the tree. He became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Now, that doesn't mean immediately, because Mark tells us that they encountered it the next day and it was withered. But even for, uh, from one day to the next, for a tree to wither to that extent is, 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 is amazing. And the disciples were amazed and comment on it. How did this happen? And Jesus gives these words in verse 21 and 22 that, uh, you know, if you have faith, if you don't doubt... You can do this, or even if you say to this mountain, probably referring to the Mount of Olives, which they were on, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, obviously, Jesus was not giving them a, a, a blank check to fulfill every desire they've ever had. That's not the point. Uh, Jesus' withering of the tree was to make a point, which we will see, and in fact, while none of the disciples ever did anything as pointless as lifting a mountain and throwing it into the sea, metaphorically they did that. You read the book of Acts. You read how the gospel spread. You read how the gospel uh, went in Jerusalem and then to Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth and to Rome itself and the things that happened. And the things that have happened over the centuries since as God's people have called out on him and God has answered and done the impossible time and time and time again. And you see how Jesus' words here are fulfilled. You see, the heart that is in tune with the Spirit of God will pray the things that are desired by God. Because we desire them too. And God promises his power to do the amazing to do even the impossible. But what was the point of the tree? Why would Jesus do something that seems so petty, so spiteful? And this, this is unusual that he, would, he, that he would curse some otherwise innocent part of his creation in this way. Some have said, well, it wasn't even the season for figs. Why should he hold the tree accountable for not producing figs in its season? 
Well, in fact, uh, it may have been early, and yet it's possible for figs, because the Gospels note the tree was in leaf, and the leaves accompanied the production of figs. Now, granted, early on, they may not have been fully ripe, but they could have been eaten, especially if someone was really hungry, wanted something to eat. And so Jesus sees this fig tree, sees the leaves, and so goes looking for figs, but finds no figs. And so he curses the tree. It never produces fruit. And in fact, it withers. What's that all about? Well, some have said that the tree represents Israel in its unfruitfulness, and Jesus curses it for its unfruitfulness. That's true, but it's only part of the truth. The tree, with its leaves, was advertising fruit. And yet, upon further inspection, there was no fruit. And so when Jesus is cursing the tree, he's essentially using that as a symbol, cursing Israel for its hypocrisy. Of proclaiming to know the truth. Of proclaiming to be the way. And yet not delivering on those promises. So that when people did go to Jerusalem, even if the court of the Gentiles was open to them, promising life, promising God, promising relationship with him, the very blindness of the leaders indicates that they would not deliver what they promised. And that's a huge danger for us as a church. Because we need to promise the right thing. We need to promise what we can deliver. That's a danger you see today. Too often, uh, the prosperity gospel, uh, which often only prospers those who proclaim it on TV, um, is, is a real danger. You promise people these things. You know, if you trust God, if you pray, if you send us all your money, um, you know, God's going to bless you. And what if he doesn't? What if your life only gets harder? Well, it, it leads to disillusionment. The danger of moralism, legalism. We have good news for you. What's the good news? Well, the good news is you have to shape up and be good and toe the line and obey the law. Or God's not going to be happy with you. That's not the gospel. That's the law. The law shows us what we're supposed to do but haven't. The gospel shows us what God has done for us and accomplished in Christ. You see, we need to recognize the reality of the already and the not yet. What we already have in Christ, the forgiveness of sins, a relationship with God, part of God's people, but what we do not yet have of living in a place of glory, free from sin, free from pain, free from sorrow, free from financial difficulties, that's to come. We don't already have that. We already have so much, but we do not yet have all that we will have in Christ. And that's a biblical view. The in-between times of Jesus' first coming and second coming. What we already have, but what we do not yet have. You see, when we preach the gospel from a biblical perspective, we can promise what God will deliver at this time. But what he has yet to deliver belongs to the future. The hypocrisy. The tree promised, had leaves, but the fruit wasn't there. Let's make sure that's not the case with us. Not only that we don't deliver what we promise, but that we don't appear to be something we're not. You know, we, we, we show the leaves of being Christians. You know, we've made a profession, we're a member of a church. But do you have fruit of being a believer? If you are a true believer, you will. But you see, our concern is not with the leaves. Too often we get concerned with looking good, with looking right, with having the leaves. But we need to be concerned with the reality of the fruit. You know, I've often told people one-on-one, one-on-one, the very first thing you say when you join this church is you acknowledge you are a sinner. 
The irony is, immediately after that, we do everything we can to pretend like we're not. That's why I tell people, I'm not surprised to discover that you are, because you made a vow before God as soon as you joined this church that you are. I am. We are all sinners. We're all works of God's grace in progress. And so it's okay to acknowledge that we sin, that we struggle with sin. You know, that God's at work, but sometimes it really is three steps forward, two steps back, or maybe only two steps forward and three steps back. You know, but we need to beware of hypocrisy. That's one of the unbelievers' most frequent charges against the church, and very often he has a point. Now, I do think there's a line between being real and being unnecessarily uh, open with others. You know, we, we use discernment, but I also think there's a very real need for Christians. There are people that we can say, yes, I struggle. Pray for me with this. Help me with that. Hold me accountable on this. And not pretend like we've got it all together. What can be more discouraging than every family here comes with all of its struggles, all of its difficulties that week, looks around and sees what appears to be a church full of perfect people? Well, maybe we're the only ones who are having a hard time. When in fact, all of us in here struggle with sin, with life, with children, with parents, whatever it might be. Uh, And how much better to acknowledge that to one another and pray for one another and encourage one another. And so you see these, these, these symptoms of sickness, worldliness, blindness, hypocrisy, then, and we see them now. But we need to be on guard and fight against them. We need to be careful that these things don't develop in our lives or in us as a community. Of course, the remedy here is to flee to Christ. In Christ is pure religion. In Christ is perfect vision. In Christ is power to deliver on everything that he has ever promised. You see, Christ is our justification. He's the one who makes up for our lack in all of these areas. He is perfect health where we are full of sickness. And he's our sanctification in all of these areas too. He turns our hearts to the Father from the world. He opens our eyes to see Him and see what He's doing more and more. He empowers us by His Holy Spirit to enjoy ourselves for ourselves and to give to others the reality of the life-changing gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, only in Christ do we find health. Only in Christ are we given health before God. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is all of this for us. Lord, we recognize that we'll never overcome this sickness of sin by our own efforts. But we thank you that you have provided for us in Christ and that you are at work dealing with these symptoms and more. And so, Father, we pray that having begun this work in us, you would carry it forward to completion until that great day when we will be like Jesus. So we will see him as he is. And we pray in his name. Amen.